Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then I'd encourage you to visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply, and it may even be you next that's on the show alongside me. Um, I'm pleased to say that on today's programme, on what is another warm summer morning here in the capital, is James Ferguson. Uh, James is a director at Rich Tone Music, a leading independent guitar retailer based in Sheffield, South Yorkshire. Uh, James, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Hello, thanks for asking me on. Yeah. It's a real pleasure, James. Certainly is a nice day for it um, as well. A little bit cloudy, but nice and warm and uh, not too humid, fortunately. Um, But luckily, we're inside anyway, so even if the rain does come, we're we're in and away from it, which is good. Absolutely. It's cooled down a bit. So yeah, that's absolutely fine. Yeah, looking forward to uh, uh, talking to you about it, yeah. Absolutely, and I think the first thing we should really do is address the elephant in the room here, and that's the fact that we're recording this podcast in the summer of 2021, late July to be exact, and therefore social restrictions due to the COVID-19 situation have gone in England for the time being, but we're still somewhat within the grip of the pandemic, and that's been the case now for the best part of 16 months. So going all the way back to March 2020, when all of this sort of really started to impact our day-to-day lives, how has all of this affected you and your business, would you say? Well, I think like a lot of uh, a lot of retailers in our position, uh, sort of small, medium-sized um, uh, music retailer in our case, they, um, you know, we were we were, we were taken by very much by surprise and didn't really know how to react. Um, and it's sort of learning as we go along, really. Um, but I mean, without question, um, you know. The, the drop off in in sales was was pretty dramatic, and as you can imagine, as a retailer, used to having quite a, a reasonable customer flow. Um, you have to very quickly develop new strategies for um, you know interacting with customers and keeping your customers engaged, um, which uh, I think has been a, a massive learning curve. And, and in a lot of ways, I would say probably a, a healthy thing to do. Um, you know, it shakes you into a sort of situation where you've got to um you've really got to got to focus on the detail uh and, and find out what what customers actually want mm. um and what what's become i think well what, what did become found very quickly is that that we um uh, are a, a community you know of people and people see it was not just as a, as a shop to buy gear from um, but a but a community and give people a sense of being part of something in Sheffield. I'm sure this is the same for a lot of uh, a lot of retailers, um, that particularly niche retailers, um, whereby you are, um, you, you know, you're a place where people can come, you're a place where people can talk about their interests, and you you, you essentially are adding value by being physical and being here. Mm. So the distinction I think between uh, you, you know, a traditional shop and a mail order retailer became quite stark. Uh, and so we we needed to try and and did try and hopefully succeeded to a certain extent to still give that shop experience um, whilst only being able to deal with people and interact with people through our website. You know, um, 
So, you know, we, we came up with uh, as many strategies as we could of trying to get in people's living rooms, you know. And whilst we'd always done uh, YouTube and videos and different things like that, you know, that became a bigger bigger element and a bigger part of what we did. Um, so, um, and, and it's, you know, I, I think I think having put the effort in from the off paid, paid quite a lot of dividends in that sense. And having sort of brought in those new methods of engagement, are they going to now remain part and parcel of the way that the business works, even when COVID is no longer an immediate and present danger? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm not going to say that um, we we would change forever. I think I think in truth, mm. um, you know, nothing can really compare with the experience of being one to one in an environment where you're with an enthusiastic. Uh, salesperson where you physically got items you can discuss a lot of people who shop with us now I, again I'm sure this is very much the case for retailers particularly in niche industries they, they don't really need anything they buy from us they want it they, they, they have a they have a desire for it it's a lifestyle purchase um, you know and people can um, they, they want they want somebody to curate and Enthuse them with excitement about a new product or a new item or something new that, that that's appeared on the thing, and that's hard to do when you when you're clicking on 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 a, on a website because you tend to go down your own avenues. And, you know, modern technology try, tries to predict what you're going to like and doesn't necessarily surprise you in the same way that a salesman might. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in answer, we yes, we're going to keep some elements of that, and, and you know, but it, but I think as time goes on. Um, certainly, the shop side of things, you know, it, we, that will that will gravitate a little bit back to how it was before. I think as people get more confident, yeah. And I suppose even amid all of the disruption, um, sales probably haven't necessarily suffered so much because with the lockdown, with a lot of people being on furlough potentially, they've been sat at home, not having a great deal to do, and so music for them could essentially be a new hobby that they've taken up. So they flocked to the likes of yourselves to get hold of all of the gear that they need and. I suppose that has paid dividends in some ways, hasn't it? Mm. Well, without question, uh, you know, um, playing the guitar or playing an instrument has become, uh, you know, more of an interest for people. They've had a little bit more time on their hands. They want to get into a bit of a more holistic kind of interest, things you can do on your own as well. And, um, you know, that has that has definitely grown and the uptake has been um, huge. Uh, and so... Uh, Part of the issue, I think, for retailers has, has shifted. You know, the demands have been there, but the supply uh, became limited. And I know mm-hmm. this has affected lots and lots of industries, whether it's building industry, whatever. So um, as, as supply has gone up, you know, sorry, as, as demand has gone up um, and the, the, the aftershock of the, uh, the shutdown of certain factories um, has created a shortage of supply. And we are still feeling that. We're probably feeling that slightly more acutely than we have in the past. So whilst you might be there with, with a load of people wanting to buy things, you can't necessarily provide everything. But but yeah, I mean, you know, we've we've done okay. And I mean, I'm not going to say that we've done um, done incredibly, you know, things have boomed uh, because of for that very reason. You know, there's been a limiting availability of stock. But um, there's certainly a demand there. And, um, you know, we, we, have, we, we have done okay. We've survived. Um, okay, um, we. I mean, we have seen a reduction in numbers 
just because uh, we don't need the number of people uh, staff to, to service um, the, you know people coming to the store and obviously with the precautions that we've put in place um, that has had an interesting uh, impact actually because I think whereas before we felt as a store we needed to be open constantly and people could just come and browse and you know um, you, you know come and hang out if you like um, we haven't felt the need to do that so we've limited the numbers um, not in a not in an overly restrictive way, just more in a way to try and give people a better service and to make people feel a little bit more confident when they're in the store, particularly in the midst of uh, sort of pseudo lockdown where you could open, but you know mm. you weren't, um, you know you still had to afford levels of restriction, and um, and that's actually worked well. And in terms of hangover, that's certainly going to continue. For other thing, I think we've, we've identified that we are a niche retailer, we're a destination uh, location, and um, People seem to respond better when they get a focused attention rather than perhaps sometimes coming in and the shop being just completely full of people uh, and, and you're perhaps your more serious customers can't really get the time that they want. So that's certainly a hangover um, mm. that, that, that I think is, is, is going to stick, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's about sort of giving customers that are coming in that special attention, as you say, and also yeah. dispelling the anxieties, the lingering anxieties that may affect confidence when it comes to going and frequenting certain venues and certain shops because of yeah. the lingering risk of COVID, exactly right. And when we think about sort of anxiety and we think about sort of mental health at large, music, of course, yeah. is such a relief for so many people. Um, so when it comes to sort of business leadership for you in terms of just making customers feel safe, making staff feel safe, just how much emphasis do you place on sort of mental health and well-being in the way that yeah. sort of you run your company yeah that's a really interesting question and i would say it's um you know it, it's paramount for us i mean in in retail in general you know your most important things to your staff and your stock your staff comes first you know if you've got an unhappy staff member then uh, it creates shockwaves throughout the, the whole business and very soon connects with the customers and the, you know the, the sales potential drops off so um, we've emphasized uh, a, a sort of a, a sort of quite quite a, I would like to think a quite healthy program of regularly talking to the staff on an individual basis and seeing where they're at, trying to accommodate their individual needs if they needed. We've been very fortunate in terms of um, our staff. No, nobody's had well, apart from one person, nobody's uh, had COVID or been had to take any time off. So we have been very very fortunate with that. But I think that's something to do with the mindset and, you know, the, um, the procedures we've put in place. And um, I think um, certainly with regard to staff, you know, um, some of them have experienced some not so easy times with family members being ill and so on. And, um, you know, we've had to, we, we've had to try and uh, pull together and, you know, give people that flexibility. And I think that's the key to it, really, flexibility, allowing people to take time when they need it, supporting them. Um, it, it, it pays off in the long run. And that's worked really, really well for us. And we, we, we are in a position now where everybody knows what the, what's expected of them. And, um, as we've sort of gone for this, if you like, this, this, this sort of freedom day where, where things have, things have changed, we as a business made a decision that we weren't going to just have an immediate reaction and throw the masks away, you know, and welcome everybody with, with, with open arms in terms of, um, all piling in. It's been very much and will be very much a gradual process. And I think, um, that 
in itself has as, as passed on confidence to customers. And we're seeing customers come to our store who perhaps would not feel confident in other environments coming because they don't feel that we're going to take advantage of that or not take the whole situation we've got in got seriously you know we're not out of the woods um and um you know we we want to just go slowly and gradually and not do any big big changes that's going to upset anybody and and that that i think's worked well it's worked well for staff keeping them safe it's worked well for customers obviously it's early days we're only a couple of weeks into these relaxation restrictions well we're only a week and week or so into it aren't we Mm. Um, so, um, you know, who knows what will happen and if the good news keeps coming on and the infections come down, then I think there may be a slight more confidence and relaxation, but, um, but certainly, you know, being, keeping an eye on people's, uh, emotional state through this, I think is a, a very important factor. Um, and, mm. um, you know, it's something that's absolutely paramount, um, I think, I think for us really, and the key to keeping a successful business going. It's critical, isn't it? And um, I think we can all say that despite it being sort of a real dark cloud over all of us for so, so long now, the pandemic at large, I think we've learned an awful lot from it, haven't we? I think even though we've been working apart for so long as well in particular, we've strengthened those sort of human connections and built up our resilience by sort of driving through this as a country, as industry together. Um, And sort of by and large, looking at that sort of crisis management experience that we've all had, um, would you say that there are any sort of big lessons or major takeaways that you've sort of come away from this period with to date? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard, I think, when you're in the midst of something to... um, to really see what 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 you're getting out of it, what you're mm. learning, you know, you're working day to day. You're just trying to keep things going. You're managing, um, you know, you, you you don't know what you're going to get on a day by day basis. But I think certainly um, focusing on focusing on your staff, listening to your staff, listening to your customers is is key. Not just plowing on, thinking you know you you know best, pushing on with. Um, you know, the what what your big agenda is. Be flexible. Look, you know, yes, we've all got targets. Yes, we've all got things we want to achieve. But um, you know, listening to people and trying to accommodate and making it so that your staff feel they've got a big say or, or, or have a sense of ownership of your of your business is, is a is a big a big factor. And I think we've we've tried very hard to do that. So we've not made any massive decisions without at least sharing it with people and giving people an opportunity to give us feedback. I think, um, you know, go as a retailer, um, understanding that you dare to offer a service as well. You know, you are, you're not just there to, to sell people things. You're there to, um, ultimately you need to sell things, but you're there as a community. You're there to offer people, uh, 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 you know, to listen to people, and you know, we we have a lot of long-standing customers, musicians who haven't been able to play for eighteen months. They haven't been out there playing. They haven't earned any money. Mm. Um, and um, you know, that's it's it's really sad. I mean, it's a big industry in this this country, and um, you know, these these are these are people who've really suffered, particularly if they're self-employed and they might not have been able to take advantage of. As, as much or some of the incentives and benefits that are on offer, um, or may, 
you know, uh, be, you know, feel as though there's no light at the end of the tunnel. They're not going to be able to, you know, uh, get back out or get things back to where they were. So, you know, that's that's part of it as well. Um, and just realizing that, you know, we're um, we're all part of that thing. We need them. We need the customers. We need these in, these these venues to be open. Um, you know, we need to try as much as we can to afford a kind of safe, pragmatic approach so that people mm. can feel confident to get back to some degree to where they were before. So, I think in terms of yeah, in terms of lessons, listening. You know, as much as mm-hmm. anything, listening. Not you know, not making an immediate reaction, listening and trying to um, trying to make a a decision together is key rather than pushing people into situations that they don't feel comfortable in. Exactly right. And hopefully as well with the return of events and venues, that's going to have a positive knock-on event for your uh, business, of course, and with people coming in needing the equipment again to play these events. And um, as we sort of try and embrace this now sort of freedom period for as long as it may last, hopefully we're not going to go backwards as we have done previously in the pandemic. What are some of the sort of priorities and targets going to be for your business over the next 12 months, do you think, James, just before we wrap things up? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think in terms of priorities for our business specifically, we want to try and get our um, our, our breadth of stock back up to where it was. Our stocks have been quite heavily depleted. It's not for uh, need of funds. It's more for need of supply. And um, we want to try and, uh, you know, we want to try and get back into a position where we've, we've got that kind of fuel in the tank, if, if you like, to um, service all the slots we've got. Um, and uh, and we are seeing some gradual uh, comeback, but I think realistically it, we're going to be getting into the back end of the year before the stock levels are back to where they were. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's certainly that. I think um, we want to transition to the more sort of open, the opening up of things in a way that um, gives people confidence. So I don't see us getting back fully to a situation we were before where we were more... We, I think there was an expectation that that we would be just a showroom that people could come and just play with things and then go and perhaps you know they they might just go and buy things online now that 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 happens and can happen and there's really no issue with that but I think we by offering a bit more of a focused um experience mm-hmm. for people people do feel a little bit more inclined to support their local stores so that um that's certainly a thing for the future that we've seen works well for us. It keeps the overheads down whilst giving people a better experience. And whilst we do have a situation where at very busy times people can queue outside, generally speaking, people do not mind about that. They, they, they're happy with that because when they get their slot, it's, you know, it's a good experience. And of course they can book appointments. Um, so that's something that, that we're, um, that's something we're, we're doing as well. So apart from that, really just uh, trying to be here, for the community, keep the shop fresh, keep everybody motivated. Uh, and, um, you know, hopefully towards the end of the year, um, we'll see uh, we'll see it all coming back and, uh, you know, the, the, the profits somewhere where they were, you know, before all this started. 
Yeah, hopefully so. And it'd be good actually um, a few months down the line, James, to perhaps even catch up just to see where we are at that point and see how the business is getting on, how the local sort of yeah. event scene is getting on. Um, I've got to say, I've thoroughly enjoyed having you on the show with us today. It's been a real pleasure and it's a shame we're out of time because genuinely I could speak about this um, all day. It's a fantastic topic. It's something that we've all missed going to our favourite events, sort of playing yeah. music, getting hold of the equipment that we need to make those experiences possible. And uh, like I say, best of luck over the, over the coming months, James. And thank you again for joining us on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yes. And lastly as well, James, do take care and do stay safe with everything that's still going on in the world as well, just before we do depart. <laughs> Will do. Thank you. You too. It was a pleasure to welcome James Ferguson, director at Rich Tone Music, onto today's programme. And I do hope that you all thoroughly enjoyed the interview. Uh, coming up next on the show, we're keeping it very much Sheffield by welcoming Lord Blunkett, our chairman and the former education secretary, onto the programme today. Um, Lord Blunkett is going to be talking about some of the key issues around the COVID-19 pandemic and his hopes for the economic reopening period that we've now entered. And hopefully we'll see some sustained signs of recovery and not a slide back into the restrictions that have dogged us all for so, so very long now. Um, Lord Blunkett will be coming up on the programme shortly. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate, Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. 
what we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm -hmm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy 
when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. Uh, 
in some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice, obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports, and this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shut, cut, uh, shutdown, 
Um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS or what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of, thinking global but acting local we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Will it be to prolonged? I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? 
I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, 
a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government, but we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did 
in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.